0: Welcome everybody, this is Peter Ravella and a special edition of the American Shoreline Podcast from San Francisco, California, with my co-host Tyler Buckingham on the American Shoreline Podcast and our very special guest, the director of the Port of San Francisco, Elaine Forbes. Elaine, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be with us today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And also joining us today is the host of the Shore Words podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Leslie Ewing. And uh, so we're out in San Francisco. We have to take advantage, Leslie, of being in your territory. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today.
2: Thank you for asking me and thank you for coming to San Francisco
3: it 's great to be here, Leslie. We love San Francisco, and uh, you know it 's just one of the most beautiful, darn cities in the world and uh, it 's a this venue we 're at here at Fort Mason for this film festival is unreal and actually, where we are right now, uh, are, you'll, the audience will remember from our previous check in we were behind the theater. We have moved now to this old firehouse uh, on the Fort Mason grounds and uh, were tucked away in the back there was just a great panel discussion on climate change and uh so we wanted to pull elaine aside and uh continue the conversation and and dive in a little deeper
0: uh, elaine would you tell us about the panel introduce us please to the panel guests you were sitting with uh, in the
1: discussion on climate change Okay, so I had the opportunity. We had an amazing moderator, first of all, which was just fantastic. And we had uh, Dr. Foley, who is a, a scientist and an educator and knows a lot about how we can Cure our planet of the ills of climate change. He left us with the message that we can solve the problem, which I hadn't heard in yeah. really ever, Yeah, which was fantastic. And then we had a, a, a scientist from uh, the state of California who works on oceans, and she is doing major policy work as it relates to uh, the state and keeping our oceans clean.
0: Yes, and you know it was a really great discussion. We had the director of the port, a member of the Explorers Cub, some real thinkers and innovators on climate change. And Elaine, we got to, uh, what I was very interested in, in 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 your presentation was an overview of the resiliency efforts that the Port of San Francisco is undertaking in light of what you expect to be fairly significant uh, sea level rise in the San Francisco Bay system over the next fifty years.
1: I did want to say, I just wanted to give their names, Whitney Berry, who is the climate change manager of California Ocean Protection Council, and I mentioned Jonathan Foley, and our moderator was Jonathan Knowles. He's the advisor to the Schmidt Marine Technology Partners, so it's a really good group of people. So yes, San Francisco Shoreline is looking to do uh, major innovation and intervention uh, to protect the city from the rising tide. And we're working on two fronts now. One, to figure out adaptive management strategies because we have a beautiful waterfront. Absolutely stunning. And a wonderful historic district that 24 million people enjoy every year. And we want to keep what we have for as long as we can. So we've done an amazing job connecting the beautiful city with its bay. Yes. And there are a lot of excellent, adaptive strategies that we can deploy to buy a lot of runway for the future enjoyment of this place. At the same time, we need to understand that we're going to have six to 10 feet of rise by 2100. Wow. And our current elevation and our shoreline will not be able, especially the hard edges, will not be able to accommodate that. So we're working on our adaptive strategies at the same time we're thinking through what the future holds and planning for that future. It's something that we may not deploy fully, it may be left to future generations, but we need to understand where we think is the best most reasonable where place to head so that we can leave a framework and at a bare minimum for the next generation
0: right and i you know i thought in your remarks one of the important points that jumped out at me was number one the port of san francisco manages seven miles of the beachfront of this fantastic city which is a stunning bit of territory. To seven and a half.
1: Seven and we a half We have one miles. half more mile. And that's all of bayfront property. So we're on the San Francisco Bay. Okay. And
0: the point that you made in was very, I think, very well stated uh, when you talked about retreat. There's a lot of discussion of retreat around the country in various situations. When is it appropriate for us to get away from the water because of what's happening along the shoreline? Urban waterfronts are a special challenge because there is basically no realistic opportunity that we are going to depart from these major city shorelines, whether it's New York City or Miami or Seattle or San Francisco or L.A. These are the great American coastal cities that are plopped next to the water. That's That's right,
1: because we, in many instances, our beginnings were from the bay, from the water, you know, San Francisco started as a fishing village, essentially. Um, so uh, our city grew around our waterfront. And it's absolutely true that managed retreat is not a tool that works in every, right. s- every situation. And for the cities, um, there's so much... Um, infrastructure and systems, transportation systems that come right behind these shorelines, which are often human made. And retreat is um, a very costly conversation to have. Um, So where retreat works, retreats wonderful and and a great tool and you can add nature to the retreat and do all sorts of problem solving there but for these hard edge shorelines we do need to pick a line of defense we absolutely need a line of defense
3: it's you have a fascinating jurisdiction because it's basically the entire bay side i mean most of the bay side of uh of the city and so anybody that's ever Uh, been to San Francisco and walks along the beautiful bay underneath the Bay Bridge and all around, you're basically...
1: On port property. You're on the port. That's right.
3: And uh, so when people think of a port, normally they're not thinking of uh, such a... public space. I mean, in fact, we had a previous conversation where I was like, there's always a big gate around the port. You can't access You never get into the port. Yeah.
0: There's something happening behind the fence, but we never know. In your case, this is the most public waterfront probably in the United States. I would imagine certainly in an urban area, a very big deal.
1: Yes. And a lot of that is because... Um, our shipping went away from the northern waterfront. Hmm. So the ports you're, you're familiar with where you can't get behind them because it's fenced in and there's, they're maritime terminals essentially that yeah. deal with tons and tons of cargo. And our port, the shipping moved, it was break bulk cargo moved south hmm. and so we had an assemblage of historic facilities and the freeway came down and we took a bunch of very good civic actions in getting our our ferry building opened, bringing the Giants' ballpark to the waterfront, yeah. getting the exploratorium and a historic finger pier, enjoying Fisherman's Wharf and Pier 39 for visitors and locals alike. And so we have a very, and then we have, thanks to the Bay Area Conservation and Development Commission here in California, that's entire mission is to open waterfronts to the public's wow. enjoyment and the State Lands Commission, both of those regulators for me are uh, attuned to the goal of bringing people to its waterfront. It's publicly owned. So we absolutely have a different assemblage of uh, facilities and experience here in San Francisco.
3: Well, it's it's, it's a port with an economic model that not, not many share, <laughs> you know?
1: Well, actually, I mean, if you think of other port facilities, Some of them have also shrunk over time because of the business has has been changing. So they'll have their traditional terminals, and I have traditional terminals as well, and you're not thinking of them. Yeah,
0: I was going to ask you about that. Yes. Tell us a little when you get to that point. Yes,
1: absolutely. So I have a traditional cargo facility at Pier 80, which imports and exports automobiles, and we have another terminal at uh, 92 through 96, and that's more aggregate- and soils um, we have some labor vessels there and we're trying to build the business actually in, in those facilities but the public isn't going there that's where the, the business the the, the um, cargo business is located but other other shorelines like San Diego and uh, New York New Jersey um, New York uh, just built a huge park in Brooklyn yeah the Brooklyn Park on former port facilities I think the difference in our model is the port authority here does that economic development work directly with our tenants so I'm in an economic development business as the port director whereas in the other cities I think they tend to give those surplus to cargo properties over to their economic development arm or their parks department or whomever is gonna take the property to its new new iteration
0: What a fascinating job. I got to tell you, it just sounds extraordinary.
1: Thank you. It is. The challenges
0: seem extraordinary. I wanted to to mention in your presentation, uh, you discussed the 1890, I think it was, uh, 1890, I guess, the 1920 seawall that was built. This aggregate, unengineered, sitting on the bay bottom, as you said, unengineered soils, which I know exactly what that means. This thing is very, well, let's just say it's probably outlived its useful life. Yes, And as you confront sea level rise, the necessity of dealing with this structure, this seven and a half mile long urban city barrier is really got to be a challenge. And I know you spoke about this a little bit. I wonder if you'd share with our listeners how you approach an issue of that complexity.
1: It absolutely does need to be addressed. I mean, I think at the time it was built, it was a feat of engineering and ingenuity that has done its job for a 100 years, and most San Franciscans didn't know they had a seawall. Right. I mean, that's the, the strange thing about that it. That
0: was news to me. I will admit to that.
1: <laughs> I'm glad I could introduce you to something new today. You
2: know,
3: Leslie broke that on us the other night at dinner. We were sitting on it. I was like, there's a seawall? We're, okay,
0: yeah.
2: Wow. okay. And so much of the development you just talked about of being sort of the rejuvenation of the shoreline is all right within that liquefaction zone, the areas that are fraught with geologic concern where there was fill. There was just unconsolidated,
1: unthought about fill placed in first. So you've got you've got a lot of issues to deal with. I do. And you know, I think a lot of shoreline communities are on fill in earthquake country, very bad situation. And our beautiful waterfront is very vulnerable. It's in terrible risk in a big earthquake. And the city of San Francisco now has been introduced to its seawall. It understands the seismic risk because over 80 percent of the voters, 83 percent, just approved $425 million bond wow. for us to what get. A, what a great
0: thing. What a great vote to get 83 percent. That says you did your work. It was in incredible. educating the community about the importance of that issue.
1: And that San Franciscans did their work in taking a look at the issue and understanding why it's absolutely critical that we make investments to keep ourselves safe in an earthquake and to prepare for climate change. So it's definitely not an engineering project. It's not easy to work in this area with so many people enjoying it with so many great facilities. Um, but we are tackling it like you tackle all problems with one foot in front of the other uh, We're utilizing great expertise. We have the Army Corps of Engineers helping us and they worked in Sandy and Katrina Yeah, and we just have the best people on the job that are solving problems So you mentioned that
2: the city can anticipate six to ten feet of sea level rise by the end of the century Are you starting to plan for that now? Or are you going to do it incrementally or are you going to kind of build up as you can go
1: I would say more the latter at this moment in time we are definitely building up as we go with an incremental approach I would almost call it aggressive incrementalism but I am looking to a frame um, I do want that created of where we will head in 2100 so we need a long community dialogue about that because there are going to be major trade-off decisions we need to make And we need to obviously do it right because it's such an important piece of our cultural identity and our city values and vitality of the city is our waterfront.
3: Can I follow up on that, Leslie? Um, So one of the interesting things that I'm thinking about this is, first of all, San Francisco is kind of a notoriously progressive community. And obviously, there are many iconic cities in America that are harbor, port, cities, um, New York, Boston, Miami, We could, I mean, just L.A., Seattle, we could go on and on. Uh, when you're looking around the country and seeing what you're trying to do here and you're seeing what's going on elsewhere, do you feel like you're ahead of the curve, that you are setting culture, that you're... That's part of the San Francisco identity. I mean, are you living up to, is that like part of what you're trying to do?
1: I admit we're living up to that. <laughs> we are living up to our um, our reputation. We are ahead of the curve on this. And I think the reason why we're ahead of the curve is the earthquake risk. Right. So we need to adapt and we're on totally shaky, unstable ground. So I don't have time on my side. I need to deal with that um, I need to deal with building a foundation first that we can adapt from. And so other city, waterfront cities, don't all have that earthquake risk I have. So I think that's why we're ahead. It's a great
0: motivator. Um, it's an out, what I call an outside forcing agent, which is a, a common attribute of coastal planning uh, over in Florida or on the eastern seaboard where hurricanes are a p- persistent risk, that tends to focus people's attention in solutions and you get past the politics a little bit because the risks are evident and substantial. Um, but we have a lot of engineers who listen to the American Shoreline podcast, so I have to ask you a design
1: question. Okay, but I'm not an engineer, I so I may not answer I, it perfectly. I, it's,
0: not, it's not a technical one. I'm curious about, do you anticipate over time that the the current seawall that's protecting uh the beautiful city of San Francisco is going to be replaced and is it going to be raised or do you know yet
1: I think it will be replaced and I believe it will there will be stuff on top of it I don't think okay. the wall itself is going to be taller I think we will build berms and other things on top of a strong seawall that satisfy and provide flood protection. We're looking at a lot of various different solutions, some land side, some water side, and dealing with the seismic issue is is more about the soils around the wall, and the wall is old and cracking and has uh, gone on past its useful life. The flood options are, some of them... could happen not on the wall itself right but inland a little bit inland or bayward I see so there are different like breakwaters or things that we may we're exploring yeah um they're they're all challenging in various ways Um, mostly I I think the most important thing for us is the environmental pieces because the bay is such a resource to the entire region so whatever we do needs to make sure the bay is healthy and well Uh, but I don't know the absolute answer but I it's possible that the seawall will end up taller but at this moment I don't see that.
2: So one of the other things San Franciscans are just totally proud of is the views. And so as you start raising anything, be it a wall or a berm, that's going to change the views both looking at the city and looking from
1: the city. That's right. And that's why I started with I want to have what we have as long as we can have it, this beautiful connection between the city and the bay. It's possible that over time... The Embarcadero will be lower lying and we'll step up in some way to the bay and have some type of living shoreline and sections. Um, uh, you know, stepping up, uh, it's possible we'll raise more on the land side to keep that clean connection. These are the kind of urban form conversations that are very deep conversations to have with the community. We'll be working with our partners at the planning department and citywide to have those conversations. But you're right, it's, it's very important that we get it right.
2: And we just had, 10 years ago, the transformation of Treasure Island to be a, a developed area that will be public space and, and development areas and people will be living out there. Yes. And they went through the same issues of how do you take this man-made, constructed island Right. And so they've got this wonderful solution of armoring and then with a berm behind it for people to be able to walk on that will eventually be the next level of protection. That's so right. We do have a local issue for or local example, example to follow.
1: It's a very good example. It's a very smart solution.
0: Well, and the other thing I think in, in terms of the reputation of the community in the city, uh, the coastal space brings together this conflict of perspectives and interest, the viewscape the economics, the port, the resiliency, the the economic interests that are affected by what you do are massive and strong and powerful. And I'm sure you're very aware of who they are. Um, but the, I, I just say the Golden Gate Bridge is a great example of a function and form and beauty and an engineering solution. I mean, it's a little simpler than re- <laughs> retooling a waterfront. But I do think there is a standard here of, of of finding solutions to difficult technical problems that are absolutely uh, stunningly beautiful and work uh, it, it seems like a lot of do you feel a lot of pressure how does it do you sleep well i mean how does it i mean if i had to think about the liquefaction soil thing behind that seawall this 500 acres of beachfront i would probably not sleep
1: well. I'll tell you, when there is a shaker at night, I wake up very strongly <laughs> and get concerned about what level of earthquake we've just had. So the earthquake risk does does keep me uh, on my toes, and we are uh, racing against the clock on that. But in terms of getting it right and figuring out a good solution for the waterfront, we have great design energy in the city and innovative energy in the city. I'm not going to figure it out. I'm going to provide a platform for smart people to talk about it and track what they're saying and continue the dialogue and find solutions and then I'll sell the perfect solution. Right. But I, um, I don't feel, I feel the community has a lot of resources to, well to work this through.
0: Understand. Um, when, uh, when you're looking at executing the strategy you guys are working on and building, over the next, you know, decade, really, or longer, um, what forces? And I, I, I mean, this is a political question. And I don't mean this in a negative way because I think politics is the art of living together. I actually have a high regard for our, the talented, the talent it takes to be effective in the political universe. Um, when you look at the con, the issues and the and the interests that you are going to have to work with, who jumps out? What interests are the most powerful in terms of how this? Uh, has to be done is that is that a fair question I mean everybody matters I don't want to say everybody doesn't but, the, but can you educate us a little bit about the the decision-making tree that you're going to have to go through
1: okay I'm my own head is exploding a little bit because there are a lot of stakeholders here right. I think the thing that matters uh, that the, the kind of is prioritized other over other stakeholders are the city's needs for the waterfront just really basic things like emergency exiting right so I'm talking earthquake right now Mm -hmm. so we need to get people out of the city by ferry and we need to get goods in by ferry so that has to work wow so you know the things that we're not you're you're asking me like how is the waterfront going to be beautiful and effective as a flood protection Line of defense. What's the new form going to be? I worry much less about those conversations that they're very complex and, and will will take shape I worry more that the waterfront won't be prepared for the earthquake the public safety The public safety so public safety definitely is a, a, an organizing principle for for our project um, the trust values of the port, what the port is, it's a publicly accessible, publicly owned place. It has economic commerce, maritime commerce. Um, we move people by ferry and cruise ships. Um, we have cargo. These are uh, important um, jobs that are important. And then that public accessibility with whatever waterfront we build, it needs to meet the trust's mission. Uh, so that's definitely organizing uh, and very important. And then I think the economic vitality and enjoyment and uniqueness of the place is another principle that we want it to be special.
0: Right. You've got to have Whitehall.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so how are you anticipating
2: the port will develop in the future separate from the climate issue? What are the, your goals for the vitality of the port for the next 20 years?
1: Well, I have so many. <laughs> excellent, excellent. You can... right. How, how long can we talk? <laughs> so we're right now working on the development of two neighborhoods, um, Mission Rock and Pier 70, um, 40% and 30% affordability, respectively, amazing public benefits. And I'm see, we're seeing those new neighborhoods come up will be very important for the waterfront. We have a bunch of historic facilities in the National Registered Embarcadero Historic District which have not seen investment, or any significant investment, and they're closed to the public. Some of them aren't even tenanted, vacant facilities. And I'd like to see those facilities invested in and opened up to the public. I think it's a real shame to lose the opportunity to enjoy the historic resources. Now, these facilities are not going, I don't know where they head past 2070, 2080, but this is where I say these adaptive strategies are so critical because to tell a whole generation of people that the peers should be shuttered to them because we don't know right. what happens after yeah. 2080 makes no sense to me. They'd hate that. I we, I would we hate, hate it. We yeah. hate it. No, them. we don't like we that, that <laughs> idea. I love these old piers down here. I'm like, wow, these Look are, where so we are right. Now. I know, they're just stunning. They're just beautiful. They're wonderful. So I'm working with my team and the port commission and the city on a plan for those, those facilities, and we'll be engaging pri- public-private partnerships to get those through. Um, and in terms of other development, uh, we are working on ferries, and getting more ferry landings, more people onto the water. Um, the bay is such a great resource, and we're landside transportation. We're just gridlocked. And so we need to get people out onto the water. So that's very important um, to get that infrastructure in for the community.
2: If these guys had come by ferry, they would know there was a seawall around the city. <laughs> that's right, we <laughs> would have would. it.
3: We drove in. Um, That's all so interesting. I mean, you know, it's one of my favorite things when you come to San Francisco is you, you, I mean, there's just a historical residue on this city. And um, this waterfront has changed a lot. I mean, I remember growing up seeing like the aerial footage and the 101 freeway like went through the waterfront area. Right. Like uh, and that's all been cleared out and reimagined and. I mean it just these cities are living things and they totally are a reflection of not only like here you are looking forward to 2080 but you're also like holding on to this tradition and culture like when we were talking on the when you were on the panel the city of New Orleans came up you know it's like the, there's you, the human component is so powerful and here we are in this dance with the bay. I mean, yes. boy, that's a difficult yes. balance to strike.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think it is a way to manage the facilities, acknowledging the past and respecting the past while leaning into the future. And you you can't just do one or the other um, to make these cities amazing places and these waterfronts amazing places. And I I do think that the historic nature of the port is a value to the city and something that makes the city so much more interesting and exciting to enjoy. And um, so I I do think that the preservation pieces are critical to our success.
2: I think one of the things Tyler just mentioned, though, of of the freeway being removed, that was... I mean, it was a horrible event that happened. That was the Loma Parade earthquake that took the freeway down. But I think it's also so commendable that everyone took a chance to step back and say, maybe we don't put this freeway back, but we turn this into an open space in an area where
1: we look toward the waterfront. That was really the turning point to me for the city. It's- it was a, the absolute turning point for the waterfront. And it was a battle at the time. It was not a consensus decision. It, Mayor Agnos at the time was a visionary, and he said, we, this is the waterfront. We want to enjoy this. But before that point, when the freeway was in front of all those historic resources, no one was coming to the waterfront. There was hardly anything but, you know, storage or some parking and other uses in the piers. It was kind of seedy. It was yeah. a little seedy, mm-hmm. yes.
2: The, the dive bar really was a dive bar. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and part of me laments, you know, with, it pours one out for divers. the old days. <laughs>
1: Yes, I'm sure there were certain things to love about it, but mostly... it's a vast improvement. It's a major improvement, and I think most... I mean, it's wonderful that there are people here in San Francisco now that don't remember not being connected to the bay in this Mm -hmm. way.
0: Um, You know, when I think about this transformation of, of shorelines around the United States, and it's one of the great things about being in the port business, is the way that we use the water's edge um is remarkable i I think of cannery row here that reflected a particular biological productivity of the area the gold rush here the history is wrapped up in our shorelines and you're about to lead the 21st century transformation of this great american coastal city I just think it, uh, when you get together with the other port directors, are they jealous that you're the director in San Francisco? Because <laughs> it's got to be the cooler, cooler one in the community, isn't
1: it? <laughs> I don't think they're jealous. <laughs> <But> they, <laughs> they might, if they're jealous, they're not telling me about it. <laughs> because most port directors like to run a cargo business and like to work on logistics and getting the most efficient trains trains, trucks yeah fuel exactly yeah ships can i ask
3: can i ask a a question just really quickly this you spurred me because what i have noticed and i lived in san francisco for like a year so forgive me my knowledge is kind of shaky but I have seen, you know, the San Francisco port traffic seems to be less than that of Oakland, just right across the bay. Yes. So let's, and let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, Oakland, one of the things that you actually mentioned in your presentation was, had to do with the intersectionality of climate change and community, lower income communities being affected and how we need to invest in those areas. Um, There's a dynamic in the East Bay and San Francisco that goes back a long time. The East Bay, I think it's fair to say, was there was less opportunity. It was poorer. It's blacker, Um, and I've seen this trend of cargo. I know that San Francisco at one point had a vibrant cargo uh, port, and now it's moving over there. Is that is this a fair? What what's happening here?
1: So it's different uh-huh. actually than just that classic yeah. uh, critique uh, in terms of, of San class and dynamics yeah. and race dynamics. What happened is San Francisco had break bulk cargo okay, and cargo containerized. Okay. And San Francisco didn't make the right investment choices to containerize. We still don't really handle much container cargo at all. We do, um, We do some, what we call project cargo, which comes in containers, but they're very large containers. And Oakland, we had a lot of shipbuilding during the war effort, and that may have been why we didn't make investments in in the necessary infrastructure to handle containerized cargo. Mm. And at the same time, we were, you know, the break bulk was, the business just was going away. And so we had all these facilities just to handle a kind of cargo that was drying up in terms of the amount of flows. Right. And so that's when cargo really moved from the north to the south. Interesting. And Oakland, meanwhile, was building its uh, maritime terminal with all the necessary infrastructure to handle the cargo movement of the day. And that's why the container ships go to Oakland. And still, the brake bulk cargo comes to San Francisco, whether that be soils or aggregate or automobiles, that's what we handle in the South.
3: Very interesting. Thank you.
1: And do you also handle the airport? No, if I did, I'd be wealthy. <laughs> Get free flights. But, but
2: you would also be so nervous and scared.
1: That's true. No, I'm. I'm sure the airport director has a very complicated, difficult job. But in many cities, airports and ports are combined. And I'm a former CFO, and um, the airports drive the balance sheet in almost every instance. Wow. Ports are. Uh, struggling enterprises because they have deep infrastructure requirements, uh, cargo and goods movement is a changing dynamic, um, so ports don't tend to be as wealthy as airports.
2: Right. Um, and also, I- You've got the idea that, I mean, ships turn around in 10, 15, 20 years for the t- technology completely, and yet you can't do that at your port facility nearly as quickly. So. That's right.
0: Uh, we're gonna. I have one last question because it was from your presentation, and I wondered if you could comment on it. I, um, I've been reading about what's happening in, in in shipping emissions around the world and the efforts to cut uh, uh, CO two emissions from from the maritime industry by fifty percent. I think it's by twenty forty. This is an international initiative, I believe, an EU led initiative, if that's right. Yes. If I'm right about that. Um, do you, tell. What? How does this? How does the port of San Francisco fit into that? Are you guys obviously? It was in the slide. It was part of your adaptation strategy. Could you comment on that particular problem?
1: Yes. So, uh, historically, uh, because these are such heavy pieces of equipment, the emissions from ships are poor. Right. Uh, from ferries, from ships, big and small, and there's. And it's serious because they, um, you know, you just cannot have those dirty emissions, even if it's required, it has historically been required to make the vessels go. But there's been incredible uh, innovations, especially out of Europe in this arena, really incredible changes. And we're seeing it now in our portfolio. We of course have adopted all the CARB requirements of the state. But our tenants, uh, we have uh, excursion vessels, and our own red and white fleet is trying to build a hydrogen vessel. They have a 100% electric vessel, wow. the Hydra. And so they are leading, um, by example, and working with the state on grants. So our tenants are bringing solutions, and they know that the Bay Area market wants the cleanest, greenest Bay Cruise or ferry uh, rot, boat ride you know in the area fantastic. and so they're responding to that demand it's very exciting that is so cool uh, Elaine
0: Forbes executive director of the Port of San Francisco uh, joined us today from the International Oceans Film Festival from uh, Fort Mason uh, fantastic thank you so much and uh, to have our 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 podcast host from shore Words, uh leslie ewing thank you for joining uh, the
2: american shoreline and podcast congratulations to
3: leslie uh for show out great to have you on the great to have
2: you on the network leslie great to be on the network thank you thank you thank you